Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and today we have not only Karen Henson. What up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we also have a guest. Is it is it like co-host if there's three of us? How do you even talk about that? Co-hosts. Co-hosts, I guess. And the other one in the studio with us today is my good friend who serves on our apologetics team here at Watermark, Bo Bishop. Welcome, Bo. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Our pleasure. Karen, what are we doing today? You know, today we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. William Lane Craig about the historicity of the resurrection. Yeah. If you know anything about William Lane Craig, then you probably know that he's a philosopher or theologian. So why would we bring somebody on this podcast who lives in philosophy, theology land, and try to put him in front of a lay audience? You know, I, I think when I first discovered him and, and, and other academics like him, it was refreshing to know that we had really smart guys on our team and gals on our team, <laughs> that, you know, that, that, that there are academics out there that specialize in studying and um, really defending this great faith that we, that we have. Yeah. So. so Dr. Craig didn't just get a PhD in philosophy. He also went on and got another PhD in theology. And his topic was the resurrection. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Yes, sir. You guys enjoy the conversation. We are excited today to have on the podcast with us, Dr. William Lane Craig. He is a Christian philosopher and theologian and has a ministry to really for Christians to equip them, but also to atheists, agnostic skeptics called reasonable faith and has done quite a bit of work in the area of Christian apologetics. So, Bill, thanks for your time, man, and uh, thanks for joining us on the call today. Good to be with you, Nathan. So, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'd love to hear, just because we are going to be talking about the resurrection today, how, how did this topic become an interest for you, and tell us what kind of work you've done in that area. Very briefly, I wasn't raised in a Christian family, though it was a good and loving home, but I became a Christian my junior year in high school, and my life was just turned upside down. And I went to Wheaton College, a Christian school, upon graduation, uh, which had a very strong emphasis on the integration of faith and learning. And at Wheaton, I gained the vision of presenting the gospel in the context of giving an intellectual defense of the Christian worldview. And it seemed to me that absolutely central to that worldview is, first of all, the existence of God. And so, upon graduating from seminary, I pursued doctoral studies in philosophy in Great Britain, writing my doctoral thesis upon a particular argument for God's existence. Beyond that, in order to justify Christian theism, it seemed to me that one needs to justify the belief that God has decisively revealed himself in Jesus of Nazareth. And central to that notion is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so following my studies in Great Britain, I pursued a second doctorate in theology at the University of Munich in Germany, writing on the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. And it was out of the, that study that this interest in the historical credibility of the resurrection of Jesus arose. So really what I'm getting from you is if you're interested in a subject, you're just going to go get a doctorate about it. <laughs> <laughs> For me, that was true. Awesome. I, I had a calling to a ministry of evangelism 
Yeah. Um, I realized when I became a Christian that if this were really the truth, I could do nothing less than dedicate my entire life to spreading mm-hmm. this good news among yeah. mankind. Yeah. And so the question for me was how to best do this. And I was convinced that in our secular day and age with university students, a presentation of the gospel would be more powerful if it were coupled with an intellectual defense Mm -hmm. of the essentials of the Christian faith. And so for me, pursuing detailed studies in philosophy and theology was an important way of having the sort of academic credentials that would enable me to get into university environments and be heard that would otherwise not be possible. Yeah, I love it. There's a couple of guys that come to mind. One is, uh, that, that was Lewis's argument, C.S. Lewis's argument, mm-hmm. where he's like, get the academy guys up there first to give a case and then let the evangelist come and kind of close the deal, if you will. Um, yes. Another guy that thought very similarly that, who uh, recently passed away a few years ago, was Dallas Willard, who thought about doing Christian ministry, but then was like, ah, no, if I do Christian ministry, I'll, the church will be open to me, but the academy will be closed. But if I do academic ministry, the academy will be open to me and also the church. And yes. so, man, I think it's great. As somebody who's followed your academic ministry for a while now, I, I mean, I would absolutely affirm that that has been a the right course of action for you. So I appreciate it. Thank you. But talk to us about when you got into the subject of the resurrection, what were some of the core questions that you were attempting to answer from a critical standpoint? I mean, I know there's obviously the basic question that probably a lot of people wrestle with, if not everyone, like, hey, did this really happen? And so when you look at it from a historical standpoint, walk us through what that process looked like for you, the kinds of questions you were asking, and how you address those. It seems to me that building a historical case for the resurrection of Jesus involves two steps. The first step is to determine what the facts are that need explanation. Uh, And then the second step is determining what is the best explanation of those facts. And this is the typical procedure pursued by historians in weighing which historical hypotheses are to be preferred. You first determine what are the facts to be explained, and then you assemble a pool of live explanatory options for those facts, and then you weigh those options against each other using certain criteria to arrive at what is the best explanation. And my claim is that the uh, resurrection of Jesus is the best explanation for certain facts concerning uh, what happened to Jesus of Nazareth after his crucifixion. So what would you say to someone who might be skeptical about using biblical sources uh, to support the facts surrounding the resurrection? I think it's important to understand that historians are ready to use and weigh any sources for some historical figure in the past. And we need to recall that these sources were not originally part of the Bible. These were just uh, independent documents written in the Greek language, things like Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, Greece, uh, Luke's biography of Jesus, his account of the early church. Uh, And when scholars look at these documents, they're not treating them as wholly inspired books. They're treating them as what they originally were, just uh, accounts of this 
remarkable man, Jesus of Nazareth, that have come down to us out of the first century. And so when historians look at them, they realize that these were written by Christians, that they will therefore have an inherent bias to them, and they will subject these documents to various tests to see how historically credible these documents are. And when you do that, it turns out that the Gospels are a pretty reliable source of information about this historical person, Jesus of Nazareth. We have far more information about Jesus than we do about many major figures of antiquity, which is really pretty remarkable when you think about what a relatively obscure figure Jesus was. So try to think of these sources not as books of the Bible, but as what they originally were, just various uh, documents written in the Greek language, handed down out of the first century, um, reflecting about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, his claims and his life. What kind of other sources besides the Gospels, including other books in the New Testament, would you say lend credibility to the resurrection account? The most important sources will be the sources upon which the New Testament authors themselves drew. When people ask for sources outside the New Testament, they're usually thinking of later sources, which by the very nature of the case tend to be secondary and derivative uh, coming later than the primary documents. The really interesting sources are the sources that are earlier than the New Testament and upon which the New Testament authors drew. And these would include things like the tradition that Paul hands on to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, which goes back to within the first five years after Jesus' crucifixion, or the passion story, the story of Jesus' final week of his life that is handed on in the gospel of Mark. As well, there are other sources behind the gospels that Matthew and Luke use, uh, behind the apostolic sermons in the book of Acts. And some of these are among the earliest materials that were collected uh, into these New Testament documents. So those are the really important sources that historians are looking at today. So what I hear you saying is, hey, skeptics are going to essentially say the Bible isn't reliable because there's too many errors. You say it's inspired by God. But what historians are doing are looking at it as a historical text. You don't have to believe that it is inspired to to have it be useful. And then on top of that, we can say, hey, 1 Corinthians was written at a later date, but the contents within 1 Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 was so close to the time of Jesus that it is even more reliable. Is that what is that right? Yes, I think that's a good summary, Karen. I think, too, there's not just the creed, but I think also, and I've talked to a, a friend of mine about how it's not just the fact that the creed exists, it's the fact that the creed doesn't exist by itself. So the creed is referring to something that's even earlier than the creed. So like creeds took time to develop. And so even if the creed is five years old, you really are talking about something, you know, even from Paul's own life and his Damascus road experience where he has this vision of uh, a risen Jesus he has to have some sort of framework for that to even make sense to him at all. And so 
it's really fascinating to see how these sources, when you start to unpack them like that, are taking us back really, I mean, not within years, but potentially even within months of the actual event. And I, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know anything else in antiquity that has that kind of uh, quality of tradition. That would be very rare indeed. I mean, to, to by point of comparison, the earliest accounts we have of the life of Alexander the Great were written by Arian and Plutarch about 400 years after Alexander's death. And yet classical historians still treat these as largely reliable sources for the life of Alexander the Great. By contrast with Jesus, we have four biographies of this man, which were written within the first generation after his death, the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. And as we've just explained, uh, these materials draw upon sources that go even further back and closer to the events themselves. So speaking as neutral historians, we have here really uh, credible historical sources for Jesus of Nazareth. Great segue. While we're comparing Jesus to other figures, what would you say to someone, often skeptics try to point to uh, other stories and say, you know, some of this narrative regarding Jesus has been borrowed from other stories of so-called dying and rising gods. What, what would you say to a skeptic that might want to assert something like that? This was a proposal that was tried in the um, 19th century uh, by skeptical New Testament critics. They ransacked the literature of ancient pagan mythology looking for parallels to events in the life of Jesus. And some of them even then claimed that um, things such as the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus were based upon these parallels in pagan myths. This movement soon collapsed, however, principally for two reasons. First of all, it turned out that the parallels were bogus. Uh, these myths of dying and rising gods do not concern historical personages at all. Rather, they're simply symbols for the crop cycle as the vegetation uh, dies in the dry season and then comes back in the rainy season. It, it has nothing to do with people actually rising from the dead. Secondly, there was no causal connection between these myths and uh, the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. And so this hypothesis has been um, discarded by New Testament historians since the early 20th century. It's, it's 100 years out of date. And the fact that these kinds of hypotheses are still floated on the internet is just testimony to the enormous gap that exists between uh, critical scholarship about Jesus and sort of popular uh, mentality and pop culture with regard to Jesus. Why do you think that some of these assertions about comparisons, why do you think they've hung around so long? Well, I think part of it is just the ignorance of pop culture. Where would the average man learn about the historical Jesus? He never reads books on this. He would only see sensationalist 
programs on the History Channel or on uh, or videos on YouTube. He just isn't exposed to the results of scholarship. I, I mean, uh, to give another example, it's exactly the same in in science. The average person has almost no understanding of contemporary science. And this is something that science teachers just lament all the time is the enormous scientific ignorance that exists in popular culture. Um, people just don't read and study these sorts of things. And so as a result, they're unfamiliar. I think the really sad thing is, though, that our ministers and our pastors apparently are not very familiar with this either. I think the attitude for many of them is that the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And so they never familiarize their people with the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith or the reliability of the Gospels. Yeah, so when we talk about sources, and I I mean, I I think anybody who knows really anything about this subject knows that we have good, reliable sources that go very close to the actual event— But then there's this whole other question of how do we know that those sources are reliable? And so when you apply the criterion of historicity to these sources, what have you found? I guess, first of all, what what are those criterion? And then secondly, how did you work through those to come to the point where you're like, hey, these are historically reliable? Historical scholars have developed a number of criteria that they apply to the sources for Jesus to determine what are the historical nuggets that can be established in these sources. And these would include things like um, independent early sources for an event or a saying. If there an event or saying is attested in two independent sources, at least one of which is very early, then it's more unlikely that it would have been independently made up. And so that will increase the historian's confidence that he is dealing here with uh, an actual historical event or saying. So independent multiple attestation would be important. Another criterion would be embarrassment. If a narrative contains facts that are awkward or embarrassing, for the early Christian church, then it's more unlikely to have been made up by the Christian church. It's more likely that this is actually a feature of the historical Jesus. So to give an example, Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist was very awkward for the early Christian church because John was administering a baptism for the remission of sins. So why would Jesus whom the early church believed to be God and therefore sinless, go to John to be baptized. Um, That awkwardness has convinced, I think, virtually every New Testament historian that, in fact, uh, Jesus was baptized by John, just as the Gospels relate. Another uh, criterion would be dissimilarity. If you could show that some feature of the life of Jesus was dissimilar to prior Judaism, and also dissimilar to subsequent Christianity, then it's unlikely to be the result of either antecedent Judaism or subsequent Christianity. It's more likely to belong to the historical Jesus himself. 
A great example of that would be Jesus' use of the title, the Son of Man, to describe who he was. This is not a title that was widespread in antecedent Judaism, and it is also a title which was not used by the early church of Jesus. Uh, you don't find it in the epistles of Paul or the rest of the New Testament, with about one exception uh, in the book of Acts. And yet this is Jesus' favorite self-designation in the gospel. Some 80 times he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And this has convinced most scholars again that Jesus thought of himself as and called himself the Son of Man. Um, another uh, criterion would be the presence of um, Aramaisms in the narratives. That is to say, traces of the original Aramaic language that was spoken by Jesus and the disciples. This would tend to show that you're in touch with a very early uh, tradition about the life of Jesus, which would increase its credibility. So, for example, in the cry of desolation from the cross, where Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, it gives his very words in Aramaic, not in Greek, which suggest we're dealing here with um, tradition that is authentic, that goes right back to Jesus himself. So there are any number of these sorts of criteria that scholars will apply to the Gospels in order to, to determine which facts can be plausibly established. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, that when you start talking about the reliability of the Gospels, like the historicity of the Gospels, so you have, if Mark is the first one written, which most New Testament scholars would say that that's the case, then you've got Mark being written to a Roman audience from Rome, and then you have Luke-Acts written that's either in Caesarea or maybe begun in Caesarea but finished in Rome, and then you have the Gospel of Matthew to the Jews, and you so you have these different Gospels. It's not like they're all coming from the exact same location. And so even when they're being written to different audiences, you still find these criterion like the criteria of an embarrassment, that the first people who witness the resurrection are women. That would be a prime example of the application of that criterion to a feature of the empty tomb narrative. Yeah. You're right, that it's discovered by women rather than men is an awkward and embarrassing feature for the early Christian movement because the testimony of women was regarded as so unreliable and incredible that to have women discover Jesus' tomb empty would almost be uh, a strike against the, the credibility of the narratives rather than one in its favor. And this has been one of the most powerful considerations in leading contemporary uh, scholars to accept the historicity of the empty tomb. So what we're saying is if these authors were making up this account, then as they were writing, they would have written that men originally found this empty tomb, right? Because otherwise, that wouldn't be ideal for the readers. They want to make a convincing story, and the, the testimony of women in that case wasn't convincing. Yes, that's exactly right, Karen. And that's probably why you don't have women listed in the list of witnesses to the resurrection appearances in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul just omits them because they would tend to undermine rather than enhance the credibility of the appearance story. Yeah, there there he starts with Kephas and then the apostles and James and the, you know, so uh, to a different 
audience for a different purpose, Paul is employing what people would have considered to be a reliable witness, which which makes you think like, well, then why are the women there? And I think it's probably because they were there. <laughs> yes, yeah, that they really were <laughs> yeah, right. the ones who discovered the empty tomb and the gospels faithfully record what for them was a rather awkward and embarrassing fact. So that's a great segue to this next question about the historical facts. So as you did your studies, mm. what are some historical facts surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection that scholars find to be historical that we can uh, build a historical case around? I think that the plethora of facts concerning the fate of Jesus of Nazareth can be collected very neatly under three principal facts that need to be explained. The first one would be the discovery of Jesus' empty tomb by a group of his women followers on the Sunday morning after the crucifixion. The second fact would be that various individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. And finally, the third fact would be that the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead, despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Uh, I think that those are the principal facts that have been independently established and that uh, any adequate historical hypothesis must account for. Well, if you want to know how we're going to deal with that, then join us next week as we continue our conversation with Dr. Craig on the historicity of the resurrection. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. If you liked it, tell your friends, subscribe, and if you have questions, please email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Thanks. Bye. Peace. Thank you.